Welcome to another episode of Odyssey and Muse. I'm John Jerko, and this is a podcast where we explore adventure, creativity, and living life without a map. Every week, we talk to filmmakers, adventure junkies, writers, musicians, vagabonds, people that veer off the beaten path. We dig into topics like how to execute ambitious projects, overcome extreme obstacles, and find the things that drive you. Find your true north. Hey, everyone. I'm really excited for this week's conversation. It's with an old friend and one of my instructors from college, Professor Daniel Williams. Daniel received his MFA in film at Howard University in 1998, and in 2000, he won Best of Show at the Rosebud Film and Video Festival for his thesis film, A Thousand Days a Year. He currently teaches film production at Bowling Green State University while continuing to independently write, produce, and direct award-winning films. I even had the pleasure of working on his latest project, Autumn Blue, as the first AC. In this conversation, we dig into Daniel's upbringing in St. Louis, his path through film school, and his process as an independent filmmaker. We get into Daniel's thoughts on teaching filmmaking and what mistakes beginning filmmakers make again and again. We talk about filmmaking as a craft, getting to know your equipment before you get on set, methods for improving your creativity, and so much more. This episode is definitely worth a listen if you're considering going to film school or becoming a filmmaker. So without further delay, enjoy the show. All right, Daniel, welcome to the show. How you been doing? I've been, I've been doing okay. I'm doing good. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, thank you. It's, it's probably been quite a while since we've talked, actually. I don't, I don't even remember. I know we, we've been emailing a little bit back and forth. You had kind of a film project in the works, and maybe we could talk about that a little bit later. But uh, just for some context for people that are listening, um, you're a professor at Bowling Green State University, and I was actually one of your students probably... Oh, geez, it's almost been like 10 years now, which is kind of scary. <laughs> in in <laughs> the film department. Yeah, yeah, I know. So, um, yeah, it's it, this will be an interesting interview. I definitely want to dig into kind of your path to filmmaking and to teaching, as well as, you know, some of the your thoughts on film and independent filmmaking and all that good stuff. Mm. So let's, let's just start from the beginning, though. It's what I usually do. And... Uh, <laughs> I'm just kind of curious, where'd you grow up? I grew up in a suburb of St. Louis, which has actually become quite famous in the last couple of years. You know, my my family moved around a lot in in St. Louis because I guess as as we got older and as my parents, let's say, got better paying jobs or so. Mm-hmm. We they would say, okay, we need we need to have a bigger house, or we need to move so we're in a different school district or whatever. And so, I know that from when I was born to when I graduated from high school, we lived in I would at least three different, let's say, communities. I mean, St. Louis. There's St. Louis City proper, mm-hmm. which which has about. Um, and it and it varies, but I would say a, probably a population of about somewhere around three hundred thousand to a half million people. But then there's what's recalled, what's uh, referred to as St. Louis County. Okay. And St. Louis County is made up of a number of smaller municipalities, and they they have their own government, they have their own fire and police, and they have uh, their own school district. Doesn't St. Louis kind of straddle like state lines too? It's like right on the border, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's it's St. Louis City sits right on the Mississippi River, 
and some of the some of the, some of the cities in St. Louis County were also sit on the river. And then on the other side of the river, you have East St. Louis. Okay. So one of my college professors would always, would always joke and, you know, say that I was, I was from East St. Louis because there were, there were actually, there were actually two black filmmakers that kind of rose to prominence in the nineties that were from East St. Louis, the Hudlin brothers. I don't know if you were familiar with them, but I'm not sure. They they had a film in the early '90s called House Party. Okay, I recognize the name. I'm not sure if yeah. I've seen it though. That was it was a it was a it was a it was a you know they they did it independently you know for the most part. I think they might have gotten some some financing. I'm not sure, but they it was released by New Line Cinema, I believe. And it uh, Kid and Play, who were the rap comedic kind of rap duo, uh-huh. um, in the late '80s, were the were the stars of that. But that's that's way going. I don't know why I'm even going going <laughs> to that. But uh, that's all right. Uh, it's good context. Yeah, but to get back to to St. Louis County, I guess what's interesting is so I can tell you I lived in I lived in a, in a uh, one of the cities called Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot of family that was in a neighboring city called Kinlock, which is actually a documentary. Um, that I'm making. We can talk about that later. Yeah. Um, and then we we moved when I was in grade school through middle school. We lived in what's referred to as an unincorporated area of, of North St. Louis County. And so it didn't actually have a government. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. But it was associated with a school district. But I went for the most part, for most of my childhood, I went to schools in University City School District, which is also where my mother taught. She taught high school at University City High School for 30 plus years. Okay. So even though we never lived in University City, I was able to go to school there. But there was a period of two years where we moved to uh, a different neighboring say city and I went to school there for two years and that and that city that we moved to was Ferguson. I had a feeling you were coming that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean I I I I grew up in Ferguson uh from let's say from uh I went to Ferguson Florissant Junior High from um seventh and eighth grade and then I went to University City High School. And so okay. I, I, I know a little bit about what it's like to be a black person in Ferguson. Do you think that it's pretty, like the controversy and everything that happened recently, do you think that it's pretty similar environment now to what it was like when you were there? It's different. It's different now. And I think, I think it's, it's, it's different for a number of reasons. I think one thing is that Ferguson is, is a fairly large city. I don't know exactly what it is in terms of square miles, but any any large city or any city that's large enough like that is going to have different parts of it where you're going to have and 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 be, and because it's of a certain size those parts are going to have different socioeconomic makeups. Yeah. And so where the incidents that happened with Michael Brown and how that particular neighborhood 
is, let's say, either controlled uh, through economics and also controlled through law enforcement was very different from where, let's say, my mother and father bought their house in yeah. 19, I think, 80, 79 or 80, where that was an area that was, at that time, you know, the neighborhood that the street that they moved on to, we were the only, we were the first and the only black family on that street. Oh, okay. Um, you know, there was, you know, single dwelling homes that had front yards, backyards. Uh, it was a, it was a cul-de-sac. So, you know, you went in and drove around, you had to come back out the same way, but that didn't mean that we weren't you know, it's, it's, it's it, there was uh, the one thing I remember in, that, that about the area is that there are always lots of trees, and the trees now are, are even bigger than they were. I mean, we're talking about you know <laughs> over like twenty five, thirty years ago, yeah. and there was a sidewalk that separated the front yard from this little patch of grass that also had like these trees on, it. and the trees were not very old. You know, they weren't saplings, but they were, they were, they had been planted, let's say within the last maybe like five years or so. Uh-huh. And there were three of them. And I remember waking up one morning to get ready to go to school and looking outside and seeing that these three trees were kind of like their trunks had been snapped and they were, they were, they were, you know, broken in half and laying on the ground. And I was thinking, oh, okay. Was the wind that strong last <laughs> night that it broke those trees, and I just wasn't aware of it? Yeah. But the reality was is that someone had come by and actually broken the trees, and they also damaged our mailbox. Oh wow! And so that was like, okay, that was that was someone making a making a statement. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, is that the trees didn't actually they weren't. I found out that that little section of grass didn't technically belong to us. It was actually yeah, city was, property. Yeah, that makes sense. Most of those are. <laughs> yeah. And so the city, so you the know, city had to replace them. the city replaced the trees and they were broken again. Oh, <laughs> um, but the, but the, the, the thing that was in contrast to that is that I remember um, a couple of nights, a couple of days after that, Second time, I think they had been broken. There's a couple, two things that happened that that made me realize that while there might be some animosity or anger or whatever from some people somewhere that didn't like the idea of us living there, mm-hmm. it wasn't fr- from everybody. So I remember one night, you know, and I I, I had a pretty good relationship with. Uh, a guy that lived next door to me, his name was Chuck or Charles. We called him Chuck. And he was in the, he was the exact same age as I was. And we went to school together. His father and like another um, father from the neighborhood, I don't remember who he was. They actually came by one evening to talk to my, talk to my father and basically to express to him their concerns about what happened and basically just to just to tell them that they didn't feel the same way and they yeah. wanted to know that they were supportive and, and et cetera. And, I, and that was that was something that to this day, I, I still think back and, and remember. And I, and I think that that was that was a very courageous thing for them to do because they could have just sat back and just said nothing. Yeah. 
you know, but they made a point of, of actually reaching out. Trying to make you guys feel like you were at home. Exactly. Exactly. That, that we, that we were, that we were welcome to some degree. And also I remember, uh, walking home from the bus one day and, you know, at that time we were, we were in seventh grade and there were, there were like these three girls that I think were in eighth or ninth grade at that time. And I was walking towards the house with Chuck and these girls had basically kind of uh, took positions and, and took stances like they were trees <laughs> to, re to replace the trees that had been, that had been damaged, you know, and just, just to kind of let, let us know that, you know, they didn't feel the same way either. Yeah. And that was, I was very appreciative of that. So given the context of where you grew up, was, was there much, film or were you interested in creativity and the arts at that time or you know did it come from your family at all kind of how did how did your desire to get into film bud back then do you remember yeah there was it was actually it's interesting there was uh in our our freshman orientation our meeting with the incoming students this morning someone someone asked one of the students asked us the same question and I think there's a there's a it was a, a confluence of a number of different things. Mm -hmm. One was that while my mother and father didn't necessarily have any at least it wasn't evident to us or to me and I still haven't really seen evidence of it <laughs> of any you know outward expressions of creativity. I mean they 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 weren't artists, they weren't painters, they weren't musicians or anything like that. Maybe they, my mother might have done a little bit of that when she was in college, but I have one older brother and three older sisters, and all of them had some creative outlet. All of my brothers and sisters were musicians at one point or another. Uh, my older brother played by ear. He, uh, he played music by ear. Yeah. And so he played piano. He played guitar. I had another sister who was a was an artist and musician. Um, she played in the St. Louis Symphony Youth Orchestra um, wow. for uh, at least a year or two. Another sister who was a performing artist. She sang and she acted and she was in in musical theater. So there was creativity all around you. Just yeah. From Do you think it came from the community in some way or from school or how did your siblings and your whole family kind of get into this, I guess? Well, that's a good question. I think this, I think the school definitely had a lot to do with that. I think, I think also at the times, you know, and this was, you know, sixties, early seventies, mm -hmm. I was born in 1966. And so, you know, you're talking about them being born in the late fifties going into that. I think it was, a, I think it was a period of a lot of particularly musical creativity. Yeah. And I think they were they were definitely influenced by that. I think that to some degree, the community where we where we lived was a, was somewhat inclusive. And so, if you if you had that outlet, you were typically sharing it with your friends and relatives. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, let's let's keep in mind we're at a time where there's not a lot of other things to kind of devote your time to. I mean, there, there is no internet, the ultimate distraction. <laughs> right. And so, you know, if, if you were going to do anything 
you were either going to put on a put on a record, and I mean an actual record, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I still have a lot of those records. You were going to put on a record, you were going to listen to that music, and if you liked it enough, you were probably going to begin to kind of create your own music to emulate and to be inspired by the things, the sounds that you were already mm. um, listening to and experiencing. And that's what uh, that's what my my older brother and one of my sisters did. They actually formed bands. My brother had a had a kind of a rock fusion R and B fusion band, uh-huh. and they actually you know had equipment and and played gigs. You know that led to that led to certain things happening. You know because you had you had them going from gig to gig in a car that had a lot of equipment in it and. <laughs> And so, you know, I remember hearing stories about, you know, being questioned by the police, et cetera. Oh, yeah. Uh, and my sister, Kathy, she had a she was in a, an all girl band where they also played kind of funk, you know, fusion, funk mm-hmm. R&B fusion. So it was just a lot of things happening. Unfortunately, I, I, why, why I played an instrument through grade school, junior high and high school, I didn't really, I never developed the skills that they did. Yeah. Which instrument was it? Uh, and that, well, it, it was a lot of them and that's probably okay. why I became proficient at any <laughs> like, Try some of this, try some of that. <laughs> yeah, I, I could never really settle on which one I wanted to play, but you know, uh, violin, trumpet, French horn, baritone, piano. I played piano for, uh, for a number of years, took piano lessons. And that's the one that I re- I kind of regret the most not continuing with that because it's nice to have a I think it's good to have some type of musical creative outlet because yeah. it leads to so many other forms of expression. Yeah, it's just kind of that nonverbal expression too, which I played guitar for about five years, but I've kind of let it slide behind. But still, mm. sometimes I'll just jam some of the old songs that I knew, and yeah, it's, it's just kind of a nice release too, even. Yeah, and I think I think it's important. I think creative. I think I, not just create people who had devoted their lives to some form of creativity, but I think everybody needs to have something that they can do that allows them to kind of work their their imagination. Mm-hmm. Particularly if if so many people probably have jobs and careers where they, they really maybe aren't able to really flex their imaginative powers. And I think that we all have the potential for creativity. I mean, it's one of the things that I've oftentimes told my directing students, particularly when it comes to working with actors, is sometimes you have to, you have to think about how basically what you're doing is you're coaching and guiding them through the process of play. Mm-hmm. And it's something that we that I know that I did and all of my friends did when we were when we were much younger. And I see it in my children when they were younger, is is that you pretend, you role play, you pretend to be a superhero or to be a you know private detective or whatever. Yeah, it just comes naturally. Yeah, and you and you went with that and you played with that for hours and hours and hours, but as we grow older, we have a tendency to move away from that idea of of play, of embodying a character and thinking about the things that that character would say and do. 
and that's that's a that's a large part of acting. What do you think the biggest obstacle to that is? Just how we start thinking about the way we look to everyone else. Do you think that's what it is? I think we get self conscious. Uh, I know. I I know. I there's a uh, there's a large part of me that that has that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we as we get older, we have a tendency to to get more serious. Yeah. And, you know, and and also, you know, we we have responsibilities and there's there's certain things that we have to do. And we don't necessarily always have that that time for play, but I think it is important to to still have a creative aspect to our lives because I think also just on a on a very fundamental level, it, it's a way of helping to manage stress. So how did you get into films and how did that lead to you going to film school? I know that's kind of a big jump, but so you had like uh, all your siblings were pretty creative. Did you at some point just start watching films voraciously or how did how did that all come about? Yeah, because um, and this was something that that you don't see um, really at all uh, anymore. But I remember in St. Louis growing up. And this is we're talking about grade school at this point. The the local stations, um, and one of them was was Channel Eleven. It was Channel Eleven and Channel Thirty. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> they had a number of different programming. And, you know, Channel Thirty, I think, was the station where we used to where I used to watch Star Trek. Okay. Um, in reruns. So you were a Trekkie then, huh? <laughs> I was a, I was I was a Trekkie. Yeah, I was a big Trekkie, and I was little. But what these stations also did was on during the during the day from I think they started at noon. So it went from noon to about six, five or six, is they would show old Hollywood movies. So you would see anything from like Abbott and Costello movies, which now look at which I used to love to watch, but now I've I've caught some of them on on like Me TV, mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh wow, I I I, I used to love you, but I I really can't watch <laughs> yeah, it right now. This is tough now. But Abbott and Costello movies to you know old like swashbuckler films, things like that, and they would show like anywhere from two to three of them in this block of time, and so. While I can't think of all the films that I might have watched, I remember if I wasn't outside playing, I was inside watching these movies. Yeah. If I, if I, you know, if I didn't have something else to do, I think being introduced to those older films, in addition to to going to the movies, which was also something that was was, was something that we did because because you also had the emergence of movie theaters in the suburbs you had the drive-in theaters mm-hmm. that was a big part of of St. Louis County there were a number of drive-in theaters and so movies were a part of you know my family life and at some point the only thing i can think of that is the pivotal part where it kind of transitioned from being a watcher of films to wanting to learn about the, how films were made was Star Wars, which is funny to say. <laughs> Especially as a Trekkie, that's sacrilege there. <laughs> yeah, but because they weren't making any Star Trek movies yet. But yeah, uh, yeah. Star Wars was a film that, I mean, it influenced me in a lot of ways. One, I, I, I was very influenced by the movie itself. Mm-hmm. And because there was so much press 
around Star Wars. There were so many newspaper articles, magazines, et cetera. These articles and magazines also started, for, I think for the, for the first time that I can remember, started to talk about how the film was made. Mm. That was something that was very interesting to me because at that point, I wasn't really, I never really thought about the idea of a, of a director. I mean, I, I, th- I think I knew the name George Lucas and I knew that he wrote and directed Star Wars. But it was more the nuts and bolts of the making of the film that I found interesting, particularly its special effects. Yeah. So I just started to kind of read. There was there was an old periodical that came out around that time, and let's say late seventies, early eighties. I think it was called Super Eight Filmmaking. I actually still have all of the issues that that I used to have, and it was about how to make Super Eight films. And most of it was really about special effects. Like in-camera type special effects? Yeah, in-camera or like building models and how to do like laser effects and Mm -hmm. smoke effects and costumes and and all of this stuff, which I thought was was really interesting, even though I never did any of that. Yeah, (laughs) It was very time consuming to think about sitting in my basement building a model of a spaceship just to make a movie. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I I, I want to make the movie, but I don't want to build the spaceship. Yeah. I soon realized that this happened over a number of years. And I think that was really the part of it. I wanted to make the movie, but I didn't want to build the spaceship. Mm-hmm. I kind of put the spaceship aside and was able to get a Super 8 camera and just started making the movies. And, and so I, so the movies didn't have, spaceships in them mm. okay. yeah were they about space some of them were not necessarily about space but I, I but i i did make this one little like two and a half minute film that was set after like a nuclear holocaust <laughs> nice and where they were and they all had these guys that i knew from junior high you know walking through this the nearby forest or trees around our community college so it was post post uh, nuclear apocalypse that then turned to cannibalism. That was that was the <laughs> film. And I and I remember this is a very quick point I'll make is that I had blood in that film. I didn't utilize the blood very effectively, but the blood that I made that I used in that film was from a recipe from the soup from one of those issues of Super Eight. Oh, nice. Yeah, with a uh, Cairo syrup. And in fact, it was a recipe that was contributed by the guy, and I can't remember his name, but the guy that did the blood makeup effects for Taxi Driver. Oh, really? Yeah. And so there's actually photographs from Taxi Driver. Now, of course, at that time, I had no idea what Taxi Driver was. I had never seen that film. But it was like, you know, talked about listed Martin Scorsese, Taxi Driver. He talked about the blood. He talked about how the blood needed to be a certain consistency and mm-hmm. a certain color so that it would look a certain way on film. And, you know, I got some Cairo syrup and some food coloring and I made like a couple of like jars of this blood. And I actually, I used it and I ended up throwing most of it away, but cause it was really very sticky and yeah. messy. Did you ruin any of your friend's clothes in the process? Uh, probably. <laughs> Probably they were all good sports. Mm. They were they were definitely indulging me. I and I used them a lot for those films, and 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 that's that's kind of how it all began. And I and I continued to do that even through high school. And this was also at a time where film production programs were really starting to kind of blossom, even mm. more so than than recently. 
And so I knew that that I could go to school and study film. Yeah. And that was my intention after graduating from high school was to was to go to school and, and study film and to have that launch my career as a filmmaker. And I think I've I've successfully done that. The the teaching of film is something that came about much later. You ended up at Howard University, right? I ended up at Howard, yeah. And that didn't happen until three years after I graduated from high school. Did you know you wanted to go there or were you kind of just searching around, applying to different schools? That happened later. You know, it's, it's, uh, it, it was not really on my radar as a first choice out of high school. I mean, I, I, as a part of me that, that wishes maybe I, I wish that I had applied to Howard out of high school, but there was a lot of that, a lot that I didn't know about their film program. And I think things happen for a reason. And so I ended up being accepted and attending USC, University of Southern California, for my freshman year. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. And it's not something I tell a lot of people because I, I didn't continue there. Mm. It was one year. But it was definitely an experience that I I don't think that I would change. I think it was it was necessary for, for me to attend USC in order to realize that that was not the school that I wanted to be. What at the time do you remember kind of turned you off or made you want to look elsewhere? Well, I think it's a combination of things. One, I didn't really like, didn't really care for LA. Yeah. <laughs> that happens to people. Yeah. <laughs> Even though most of my time there I was, I was on campus, but I think also, and it, and, it, and I understand how they have to do this. USC has a very selective process because you can get accepted to the university, but not get accepted to the film school. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where I was. Uh, so even though I was, I was able to take, I took two film classes. They were film studies classes. And I got rejected from the film school twice. And while I had every intention of continuing at USC for my sophomore year, I did not have enough financial aid. Mm -hmm in order to continue there. Cause at that time USC for, and it's, it's private school. So it didn't matter where you were coming from. If you were in state or out of state, yeah, yeah. once you added like room and board, it was about $30,000. I think it's like at least twice that now. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, it's like high school. I, I, I did really well in high school. I had good grades, but I wasn't necessarily like an overachiever. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I didn't have like I, I graduated with like a three point I want to say seven three point eight GPA, but that didn't translate necessarily to like the SATs. Yeah, and and I and I fought tooth and nail not to go to the SAT prep courses, <laughs> which, <laughs> which I which I might I kind of regret that now uh, because they are beneficial because you know it's it's like yeah. it's it's something that that can put you in a position to get to get decent financial aid. It's tough at that age though. I feel like I was kind of the same way. I was like, uh, another test I've got to study for. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you know, my parents, the family just wasn't able to afford that tuition, and so. Uh, reluctantly, I moved back to St. Louis, back home after freshman year. But I think it was good because it, it allowed me to kind of reevaluate what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, two years 
working uh, full time, going to school part time in St. Louis and just kind of kind of living and thinking about things and doing a lot of research. I decided that I wanted to have a different experience. Yeah. And I wanted to go to a school that would kind of teach me filmmaking, but also teach me. There was two things that I had as an agenda. I wanted to kind of look at filmmaking from a other than Hollywood mm-hmm. context. And there were a couple of things that happened within those two years that motivated me there as well. And I also wanted to go to a predominantly black university. Mm -hmm. And so one of my older sisters had taken a break from school as well. When she decided to go back to school, she went to Howard University. And so um, I had that kind of connection. I had family in the D.C. area. Um, my, my brother and his wife were living in Maryland. And so there was, there was some support system that was there. Yeah. Did you ever make a trip and visit the campus before you decided to apply? Um, yeah, I did. I did. Um, I, I made a a trip there. The funny, the interesting thing about that trip is that, um, we went on a campus tour and I didn't take advantage of going and investigating the School of Communications, which is where the film program was housed yeah. for some reason. I don't know why I didn't do that, but I should have because I, I would have met maybe hopefully I mean, I, w- I would have met some faculty or whatever. But I ended up I ended up going there like the following fall. So it was, so was kind of OK because I kind of knew that I wanted to be there. And so there was really there was really nothing that was going to kind of like dissuade me or mm. further concrete my already uh, plans for going. But the other thing, other two things that happened that kind of led me there and also led me towards the idea that you could make films on your own outside of Hollywood or a studio system was the emergence of Robert Townsend, who was maybe more closely aligned with the studio system, even though he, he didn't get finance from the studio system mm-hmm. for his first film, but also Spike Lee. Yeah. And so I, I saw Hollywood Shuffle and She's Gotta Have It in those years where I was in St. Louis before I uh, went to Howard University to yeah, study yeah. film. So you were like, there's, there's another way through. Yeah, and those, <laughs> and those were pretty galvanizing and also mm. inspiring moments that told me that, yeah, I, this, I, this is something that I can do. Because the ironic thing is, before Spike Lee, before Robert Townsend, I really did not have an awareness that there were any black people making films on that level. Yeah. And now when I think back about it, I was like, wow, I was really stupid because <laughs> there was Gordon Parks. There was Michael Schultz. Mm. There were a lot of independent films being made, but they weren't in my sphere of influence because they just weren't being disseminated to where I was. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't have a mechanism for finding out and researching them. Yeah. There was no advertising or marketing or anything. Exactly. And, and, and going, and going to Howard was definitely enlightening in that regard because they made a point of introducing the students to the fact that there were these filmmakers that were either in this country or in Africa or Cuba or Mexico that were making films 
on their own outside of this commercially oriented structure that has to do so many things and presents presents the world in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Very inspirational. And also, you know, you, the, Howard University is, a, is an international university. And so there were students there from all over the world. And that was particularly going into grad school there, um, the MFA program. That was definitely influences that I probably wouldn't have gotten anywhere else. And, and, I, and I still keep in touch with a lot of those people. Yeah. Even today. And we and we still collaborate or at least we talk about collaborating (laughs) and we try to do it. But everybody's, you know, spread out all over the place. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's even if we're not working on a film, we're still a source of inspiration. And also, you know, if, if I if I need feedback on something, those are typically some of the first people that I will go to. Yeah. So while you were at Howard, what what were some of the biggest takeaways or what? What areas of study did you kind of gravitate towards the most? Well, let's see, as an undergrad, you know, uh, my major was was film production, and it's a Bachelor of Arts, and it was we're housed in the School of Communications, you know, and and their their undergraduate program is is not that different from the undergraduate program we have here, mm-hmm. with the exception of their film program was part of a radio, TV, and film department, okay. which was part of the, a school of communications. And so you had, you had students, you'd have classes with particular introductory classes that maybe were looking at broadcast production as a career or looking at going into radio as a career. Yeah. In addition to students who were really looking at being filmmakers. Whereas at Bowling Green, it's still part of the theater department, right? Yeah, it's still theater and film. And so the students that want to do, let's say, broadcast or radio or anything, they're, they're, they're at least in, on this university, they're on the other side of campus. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there, there are things in place where there, there, hope there's, there's more interaction, mm-hmm. like the student organization. But it's not quite the same as being in the same class or being in the same department with those, with those students. Yeah, and kind of mixing those different kind of theoretical ideas and styles of shooting and reasons for shooting, I guess. Yeah, and also, yeah, exactly. And, 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 and seeing on a very tangible way that, like you just said, the, the, their, while you know, my interests were always film or cinema, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that I can't learn something from the person whose interest is broadcast production. Yeah. You know, or I can't I can't hone certain skills that I'm trying to develop by taking a, you know, an ENG class, mm-hmm. something like that. Although I didn't take an ENG class, um, but I did end up taking a class where we, we had to do ENG type shooting for certain projects. Yeah. Which is a electronic news gathering, right? Yeah, electronic news gathering. I don't think I don't think that's a is that a term that's even used? I don't I don't think I've heard it since I've been in school, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for anyone that doesn't know. Well, yeah, which which was good because when I think back about some of some of those courses and also like my my years of working at the Public Access Corporation of DC, those are things that I'm that I'm applying or some of those things I'm applying to like nonfiction films that, that I'm making and or have made. But the other aspect I think of classes was I was also a, I was an English minor. Oh, okay. So you, 
kind of gravitated towards the writing side of things as well? That was the idea. And because I, because I, I wanted to, I think coming out of high school and going into college, I was, I made a point of reading more. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's funny when you're not in school, if you want to read, that's the time to do it. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. I, there was that period of, you know, I talked about those, those two years where I was, I was from like 1986 to 1988, where I was not a full-time student, where I was reading a lot. And, yeah. and most of what I was reading, which was, was nonfiction. And so there was an aspect of, and I, you know, I wrote some short stories in high school. And so I think that there was, there was a part of that within me that had an affinity for literature, for mm-hmm. writing, for storytelling. And I thought that would be a, a, a foundational area to kind of help my filmmaking. I mean, you were not a, you were a philosophy minor. Yeah, I did. I actually was an English creative writing minor when I was at Youngstown before I transferred. So right. I was kind of interested in that as well. And then, yeah, I ended up doubling in philosophy, which is similar to English in some ways, I guess. <laughs> Just thinking about language. Yeah, and I and I actually was able. And I can't remember. Did I take this class? This I think this was actually a class I ended up not taking until I was a graduate student. But I ended up I was able to take a it was a writing class with uh, his name was uh, Dr. Hamoud, and I didn't know it at the time, but he was actually a really great guy. He was um, he knew Gary Marshall. Oh really? Um, yeah, and I and and I didn't get the specifics of that, but I think he actually might have worked maybe a little bit on Happy Days. I I, I remember him mentioning something along those lines, yeah. but um, he taught a he taught a short story writing class that I took, and one of the short stories that I wrote in that class was published in the literature magazine that the Department of English at Howard University published. And so I was kind of happy. Uh, that was, that was like, you know, um, uh, one of those things to say, yeah, I, you know, yeah. I wrote something that somebody said was, was decent enough to put in their magazine. Yeah. And so that was encouraging. Do you think part of the, the draw to English as well was just kind of, you had this idea of being an independent filmmaker. So you had to know all aspects and do it all yourself. Do you have that in mind at the time? I don't, I don't think I consciously thought that strategically. Mm-hmm. I knew that, well, let me actually, that might have been the unconscious rationale for it. I knew that there were filmmakers that I respected and I knew that they were writer directors. Yeah. Even going back to George Lucas kind of starting creating the story of Star Wars. And- yeah, exactly. And, and also looking back, Woody Allen was coming into my radar as mm-hmm. well. Uh, Spike Lee was was writing and directing all of his films, and so and also I didn't realize that at the at the time in terms of the, when it came to the graduate program because as an undergraduate I still wasn't even thinking about. Well, actually, I was thinking about graduate school, but I didn't I didn't realize that that was kind of also a part of the independent philosophy. There is a culture of directors writing their own stories and then taking it through that entire mm-hmm. process. And so it just seemed like that was going to be not just a way of supporting the filmmaking 
film production degree, but it was also something that I was interested in even yes. before, you know, kind of going. It probably would have been something that I might have even pursued if I had if I had stayed at USC. I don't know. Yeah. Is there anything from those days that sticks in your mind even now when it comes to either teaching or when you're on set making film? Is there any any voices in the back of your head that kind of come back from those classes? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot. I think one of the things, particularly for undergrad, and this is something that I see in some of some students here, and I and I try to encourage and and students that I don't see it in, is coming with a certain level of wanting to be involved and being involved in the process because it's very easy to have an interest in a certain thing, have an interest in making films. And you you say to yourself, this is something I want to do. And you'll do it, let's say on your own, you'll do it with friends, you'll you'll come to the class, but you can also not fully involve yourself in everything that is an aspect of that. For instance, now more so than ever, but also when I was in school, we have, we're working with equipment, we're working with cameras, whether they're mechanical cameras or whether they're digital cameras, we're working with equipment. And the more we know how to use that equipment, the more proficient we can be and how we want to use that equipment in order to tell our stories. Yeah, it becomes an extension of yourself. Exactly. You don't have to think about how to do certain thing because you know there's something you want to do, but you don't have to think about how to do it because you know how to use the piece of equipment. The thing that I wish I had I had done more so back then, and something that I'm trying to get students to do now, is to take some time to read the manual. <laughs> <laughs> Figure out what all those buttons do. Yeah, but just but you can learn so much about how to use a tool by just by looking at the manual. In addition to mm-hmm. learning, working with that piece of equipment, becoming familiar with it before you go out on a shoot. And it's something that I've I've seen in students, no matter how much you talk about the piece of equipment in class, no matter how much you have training built into the class where hands-on experience in the class, there's still that extra step that a student can take to bond with that piece of equipment on their own, right? Before they go out on a shoot so that if something does happen, something that you've never seen before, you can maybe solve that problem because you have made a point of becoming as familiar as you can with that piece of equipment. I mean, it's 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 like you're not going to get behind the wheel of a. I mean, some people do, but you're not going to get behind the wheel of a car <laughs> and start driving a car without yeah. learning how to drive that car. I mean, if you think about the state of Ohio, I mean, and I know this because my my daughter just recently got her license. They're asking drivers to drive on the road for like 50, 60 hours. Before you take yeah. the road test to get your license, but we have a culture that doesn't, uh, on a whole, doesn't apply that same kind of rubric to learning how to use a camera, or learning how to use a light meter, or learning how to even mm-hmm. work with a light, or even software. Now, I mean, there's exactly learning, learning, learning how to use the software before you say, "I am an editor." 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know how to do these two things out of the 5,000. Yeah. Software so, game. so it's, I think it's, it's a, it's a, uh, I, I wish I had been better at balancing the desire to create and the need to learn how to effectively use all of the tools that were at my disposal. Yeah. I do actually remember from my undergrad there at BG, I think we had the option to do like an internship or a practicum. Right. And I ended up doing the practicum and through that, I ended up working with you, and I just remember spending a lot of hours in the the film lab working with all the sixteen millimeter equipment, and I got to actually play with the you know the old reels of film and put them through and learn how to load it and mm-hmm. unload it, and uh, that actually ended up paying off quite a bit on a couple of shoots that I did later on that were super sixteen, and I ate seed on them, and if I wouldn't have had that time with the cameras, I probably would have. Probably just wouldn't have done it because I would have been too afraid to <laughs> touch the cameras. Right. Well, that's. I mean, that's 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 great. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, yeah, because there's 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 a there's a learning curve with with anything, and I think the technology that we have now. I mean, filmmaking is the ability to to tell a visual story, the access that that we can potentially have because mm-hmm. you know there's there's still a lot of disenfranchised individuals, groups of individuals that don't have the access to the technology that maybe the majority of us enjoy. Mm -hmm. But because so much is more accessible now than it's than it than it was 30 years ago, I think there is a tendency to not devote as much as much time and effort into learning how to use certain tools because the technology and on some some ways makes makes it appear that it's something that's very easy to do. Yeah. When the reality is is that yeah, it's easy to some degree. I mean, you can you can take out your iPhone and you can make a you can make a film with your iPhone and I have no problems with that. But you still have to I mean, but then it still comes down, well, what kind of film are you going to make with your iPhone? Yeah. Um and what are you going to say? which is an even a completely different topic of discussion. Yeah, I do. I do remember that out of your classes the most that and I think I don't know if this is where some students butted heads with you, but you would just try to get people to think through the process or, you know, why they're making this movie or the theme behind it. And most people just wanted to, you know, get out there and and I think a lot of them at the time were fighting film as well, just because the digital was out there too. We were kind of on mm-hmm. the cusp. Mm-hmm. So like, I could just pick up this camera and go shoot it. Why do I need all this other theory and <laughs> thought process behind it? Yeah. And the thing is, is that, you know, and I, and I, I, I appreciate that. And I've, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, I've really been trying to streamline, particularly like the, like the class I'm teaching this semester that I've taught. And I think, I think you were in that class, maybe not like the film one, a basic cinematography class. Yeah, yeah. just trying to to just streamline that so that the class is really focused on on certain things because there's so much that has to be has to be covered in that class. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that the other the the filmmakers that you know the students idolize or follow or respect, they are thinking about thematic ideas. They are yeah. thinking about what it is they're, they're trying to say with their film. They are thinking about how they're going to communicate these ideas. And 
while it's okay, I guess, to some degree to say, okay, I, I want to do this shot because it's cool, fine. But let's also think about, one, what that shot, what information that shot might be conveying. Mm-hmm. And two, is that shot, you know, and what you want to do with that shot appropriate for the, your story and at that moment in your story? So we, we have to... It's dangerous to, I think, to go forward with a visual medium like cinema, like film, that is so effective in communicating ideas and influencing people mm-hmm. without having an understanding of what you're saying. Because you don't want to be that person that makes a film and doesn't have a complete understanding of the ideas, the ideology that is being expressed in that film. And that's, that's one of my main concerns, um, you know, particularly at, at, at Bowling Green, because, you know, we do get, I think, we have students coming from a lot of different backgrounds. And, you know, there is a tendency, there's a dominant group that are, that are being influenced by a certain type of film. I mean, let's just put it out there. We have horror, crime, zombie, mm-hmm. and movies where people are killing each other. I mean, that's <laughs> that's the that's a that's a that's a pretty prevalent story. Yeah, even a lot of the biggest TV that's out right now. I mean, that's that's kind of the yeah subject and matter exactly. And and the thing is, is that you can't go forward with that. And just say, I'm, I'm going to do this because it's cool and I like these kind of movies. No, you're, you're saying something. Even those, film, even those filmmakers know what they're saying through those particular genres. Yeah. They're making a commentary. And so, you know, if that's the type of films you want to make, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not going to discourage you from doing that. But just be aware of what it is that you are communicating. Mm-hmm. I want to dig more into the philosophy side of it, but can we kind of just connect how you ended up deciding to go and get your MFA and then how that ended up leading to teaching. Well, the MFA was, was once again, kind of following filmmakers that I was studying and admiring. Mm-hmm. And, you know, while, while I had put aside aspirations of making big budget sci-fi films like George Lucas, George Lucas went to film school, mm-hmm. you know, got an MFA in film. Coppola earned an MFA in film. Well, I didn't don't necessarily like all of his films. I think you could you still learn filmmaking from films that you don't necessarily like. And yeah. so Scorsese got an MFA in film. Spike Lee got an MFA in film. So you're kind of seeing a pattern there. <laughs> yeah. And then also because my undergraduate program was in a department that also had an MFA program. I was seeing those MFA students and working as production assistants on some of their productions. And so I was seeing them in the MFA program. And so bit by bit, there was like, oh, I want to be like that person. I want to be in, in, in the class that they're taking where everything they're doing is about film. And so the idea of academic pursuit that is completely focused on film, film production, film history, 
film analysis, film critical studies, film theory, that appealed to me. I felt like I needed to learn more about film and I wanted to do it in an academic environment. Yeah. There were professors that were in our department that, you know, some would also teach undergraduate courses in addition to graduate courses. And I wanted to learn more from them. Mm -hmm. And at some point in uh, my graduate career, uh, I became a teaching assistant. And, you know, that was a way to, to help with tuition. And I slowly developed a, there was something satisfying about having uh, like a lab with undergraduate students and sh teaching them and showing them how to like use a light meter mm -hmm. or how to load and properly use a Bolex camera. And I soon, it soon became realized that what the faculty in the MFA program were doing was they were, they were teaching us right, in the graduate school, mm -hmm. but they also had very productive and careers as filmmakers. They were making films. And so I realized through them that I could make films on my own, right? And, you know, they, you know it's like, that's a crazy thing to say. <laughs> yeah. Why would you want to make films on your own? I uh, mean, why would anybody choose to do that? Because it's just crazy. It's yeah. not a, it's not an easy thing to do. It's very frustrating and depressing. <laughs> and, you know, it's like the highs and the lows are ridiculous. But if I was going to do that, if I, if I did feel compelled to make my own films, having the MFA and having a teaching position, right, at, in a program that had equipment you know, it may sound selfish, but that was the way that would be a way to do that. Yeah, I could I could make films if I could if I could forge a career as a teacher, I could also make films because I would be teaching films. I would be learning as I'm teaching because mm -hmm. I'm I'm learning from students and I have to constantly think about not just how to teach more effectively, but also how to be a more effective filmmaker while at the same time I'm also making films. Yeah. And it's a way to kind of have a more stable life <laughs> or lifestyle, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, you know, up until up until coming here, I mean, and, until you until you're able to, to secure a extended contract, the teaching career is pretty unstable. Yeah. You know, particularly if you're if you're an adjunct or a part time. I mean, it's I, I did those for a number of years and I. I taught at a number of different schools and you might have a job one semester and not <laughs> one the next or a job one year and not one the next. And yeah, that could be stressful. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's not, it's not ideal, but it goes with the territory. And I think you go into that knowing that that's what you have to do and you have to kind of be flexible. It can be more difficult if you have a family. Um, and I think that's why you see a lot of adjunct and part-time uh, instructors and professors don't have families because yeah. they know that they might have to pick up and move to another city or another state to go where the job is if their contract is not renewed. Yeah, that makes sense. Did you start your family well before or after? I started my family in grad school, which was also not a smart thing to do. <laughs> but 
<laughs> you know, some things happen. Huh? Yeah, things happen. <laughs> right. Let's dig a little more into your teaching. Do you feel like you have a philosophy of teaching or a philosophy of teaching film in, in particular? I know you kind of went through some of some of your thoughts on just, you know, putting putting in the necessary thinking time into what you're trying to create rather than just jumping in and shooting a bunch of people get shot up <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I the job mandates that, you know, oftentimes you have to present a teaching philosophy. Mm -hmm. And now that you're asking me what my teaching philosophy is. <laughs> Put you on the spot. Um, I think, okay, I think one thing is, and this is something that, um, this is not from me. This was, I, this was, a uh, something that, um, I got from a book that, uh, Gordon Willis said, who's a cinematographer that, uh, I admired, um, because of his, um, desire to do, um, let's say unexpected things with the, with the image and exposure. Mm -hmm. Gordon Willis is probably best known for shooting the Godfather trilogy. Yeah. Uh, it's a DP for that. But he said that filmmaking Filmmaking is not an art. His opinion is that filmmaking is a craft. Mm -hmm. And you can create art through the craft, but filmmaking itself is not, a, is not an art. And I think if we were to, to build upon that, I think it's in one of my philosophies is that you have to take time. We talked about this earlier of really learning how to use the various tools mm -hmm. so that you can create art, right? Because you, in order to create art, in order to express, to make a statement, right? Uh, to make a singular statement through the visual design of an image, mm -hmm. you have to have some understanding of how to manipulate and effectively use the resources that you have you, using your tools. I think the other thing is you have to be open to not just other forms of visual expression. I think you have to be open to all forms of creativity and allow them to inspire you. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to be knowledgeable of film itself and not just film that, you know, the last 20 years, but I think the, the entire history of cinema and the entire history of cinema in other cultures and other countries. I think that's, I think that's a must. What benefits do you think you gain from that? Well, one, I think is that I think it, it gives you a appreciation that cinema can be more than a way of making money. That cinema is not just a product. Mm. That cinema is a form of cultural expression. Mm -hmm. And just like music is a form of cultural expression and painting and sculpture, cinema can be used in that way as well. And I think that's something that is not a big component of cinema in the United States because from the very beginning, particularly this, when it, when it became evident that people would pay money to, to see movies, 
is when I think cinema in the United States went from being something that could have been a purely artistic form of expression to something that became a industry. Mm -hmm. And while we still may have artistic sensibilities, it is an industry. It's, it's a machine yeah. that is designed to create a product and for that product to create a revenue. Yeah, and I think we you kind of just luck out over the years that um, some people manage to make art within that system, but it's definitely, Hollywood's definitely geared towards just cranking, cranking out product to make money. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the, whatever art that might be created within, I mean, it depends on what system we're talking about, but whatever art that might be created is not regarded in the same way. And, 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 and the reality is it's, it's not seen by as many people. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, I mean, compare the number of people if we're gonna if we're gonna use that term very loosely, but let's let's say that Terrence Malick's a tree of life. Let's use that as an example. Mm -hmm. um, and that's definitely a filmmaker that, you know, outside of how successful he might be in achieving his goals, his films he's not making films that are designed to make uh, huge sums of money. Yeah, definitely not blockbusters. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely being motivated by other or other motivating factors at work and yeah. and how he creates. Now the thing is, is that if if that film does get a theatrical release, it's gonna go to you know the the art house theater in town, right? And in a particular uh, city, it might be the only place it shows in a particular state. It, it might be maybe two places it shows in that entire state where what just Suicide Squad, for mm. instance, is uh, just in my head, though I have, I have not seen it and don't plan to see it, <laughs> is going to show on almost 3,000 to 4,000 screens across the country. Yeah. Imagine what society, what kind of society we would have if those numbers were completely reversed. Yeah, yeah that would be interesting. <laughs> it would be a very <laughs> different culture. And if you read history, there was a very brief moment where the culture was moving towards that direction. Mm -hmm. And then there was a there was a, a shift that was made. What period of time was that, do you know? This is this is in the silent era. Okay. So way early on. Yeah, this is a shift that was made in the silent era. And it was it was a it was a a shift from the revelation that films could make money and could could be designed and made in a certain way that would motivate people, lots of people to come to see them, as opposed to, let's say, a more European uh, perspective mm -hmm. where films were an, uh, an art form, a pure art form, and did not have to be made in a way that would generate revenue. So do you feel like this is part of your job then as a, as a teacher to open this world to your students and, and let them know there's other reasons to make movies than big explosions? <laughs> do you feel like you fight that? Uh, I try to take it all in stride. Yeah. I don't, I don't consciously try to com <laughs> combat it. I will, I will definitely share films that I think are important, that I think have 
whether you know uh, an impact on me or I have, a, have have had an impact on other filmmakers, films that I think that are important for students to see if they are not aware of them. Yeah. But I definitely don't dictate to a student what type of film they should make. Yeah, I guess more I'm just saying, you know, just kind of giving them a view into a world maybe they don't really even know about. Yeah, I think that I think that I think that goes along with if you're going to be a practitioner in any art form, you should be aware of everything that exists within the art form mm-hmm. or within the craft. While you might l- really like uh, big budget action movies, you should also be aware that there's this there's this guy who lived in Russia named Andrei Tarkovsky who had a very different philosophy of filmmaking. Yeah. And this is an example of a film that he made. There's no reason not to also be aware that those types of films exist. Yeah, I, th- I remember getting into Tarkovsky pretty big when I was at Bowling Green, and I really enjoyed his films, but at the same time, I remember a couple of them, I actually had to fall asleep in the middle of them and then wake myself back up and finish it. <laughs> I had to break them into chunks. This is just a, a different pacing than we're used to, for sure. I, I, absolutely, and I and I think I don't know what you were here. Maybe we should not have done it. We had the we had the Tarkovsky retrospective at the Gish Film oh, Theater. I don't remember we, that? I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I don't, we showed three of his films. It was either either before you might have come or or after. It wasn't it definitely wasn't after okay. you graduated. That was, was like, you know a combination of of his philosophy of cinema, but also. You know, and maybe not necessarily a cultural expression on his part, but that's that's the thing that can also greatly influence how a film is made and how a film is presented is mm-hmm. is that culture, because Western culture is not like Eastern culture. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> and, and he was definitely fighting the forces of communism and trying to trying to be a an artist in a system that wanted a specific message passed along to. And yeah. You seem to be one that would fight against that, but find a way to make it, find a way to get it through the system, I guess. So people could see it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so maybe that's an extreme example, but you know, it's like, so <laughs> it's, it's good that, you know, you, you may not want to make films like that. You may never watch another Tarkovsky film ever. <laughs> But you know that Tarkovsky exists and you have an understanding of how and why he made the films that he did. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important. And the thing is, is that as, as, as many filmmakers throughout the world that I'm aware of, there are still lots of filmmakers that I'm not aware of. There are still lots of films that I have not seen that maybe I have read about that I know are important films in the canonical history of, of world cinema, but there's just, there's, there's still, even for me, there's still a lot that I just have not had an opportunity to see. Yeah. Do you have maybe for someone that hasn't seen a lot of either old history or old cinema or just a lot of stuff in general? I mean, how do you look at this giant chunk of work? (laughs) And, and nowadays, I mean, it's just so much stuff is coming out it seems almost impossible to keep up with. I mean, how would you point someone in the right direction of kind of gaining a more, a broader knowledge of cinema without kind of losing their mind or feeling totally overwhelmed? (laughs) Do you have any strategy for that yourself? 
I think one one thing is there's like I said there are, there are a lot, there are so many resources now, and so if a student if a student is actually in an academic program, particularly like an intro to film or a film history class, keep your textbook. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> keep your textbook, and you know use that as almost like an encyclopedia, so that you can make the time and and make the effort to kind of go through that encyclopedia and look at a particular period of cinema or a particular country I did, you know it depends on on the book just say okay I'm I'm you know this read about it first you mm-hmm. can read about it and then you know I encourage uh, this person to then find that film somewhere and to watch it just thinking about the resources which was the thing that once again we did not have so you know we would we would have to go to the library and see what films were at the library and and we I mean, we used to have these these older it would be a uh television vcr combo you'd stick oh, yeah. <laughs> vcr in it and, and the image would appear so it wasn't even that you couldn't watch broadcast television it was only designed to play the videotape and so i remember going to the to the library at, at howard and also you know at howard but also starting that at usc and because usc has this incredible archive of films and going there and you know, signing out the VHS tape and watching it in the resource room. I mean, that's how I watched Shane there because I, I had a, I had a, it was an American cinema from like 19, 1932 to 1950 class. Mm-hmm. And so we watched films through each of those like major periods. Now you, you can, you can pretty much, you can watch those films online now. I mean, if you, if you're a subscriber to Netflix or Hulu. Yeah, there's a, a lot of the Criterion is on it's, Hulu now. Yeah, too. there's a huge collection there. The Criterion collection is about to move to its own dedicated streaming service, oh, okay. which I'm which I'm very disappointed of about. But <laughs> you know, but so that's now not an, another monthly fee that's mm-hmm. gonna um, I have to consider whether I'm gonna pay for that. But <laughs> I mean, it, their their collection is huge, and so it's not something that you're gonna get through in any one day or any one weekend. But it's it's like for instance. I think you, I think first you have to have within you the desire to want to expose yourself to this breadth of s- cinema history. Yeah. I think it, it first you have to have that desire. You have to know that tell yourself that this is this is an important thing. You have to love cinema. Mm-hmm. You're not going to do it if you if you don't love cinema. Yeah, otherwise you'll just be passed out drooling on the desk. <laughs> yeah, and I think if if you're gonna if you're gonna study film and you say yeah i like film okay lots of people like to go to the movies they Mm -hmm. like to watch movies but if you're going to study film and if you're going to consider a career as a filmmaker i think you have to be more than just someone who likes going to the movies you even have to be more than someone who just likes making movies you have to want to make movies movies making movies has to be the thing that you cannot see yourself doing anything other than that mm-hmm. because it's not an easy thing to do. If you, if you students, you know, and, and I, and I, my film one class, I have students that have to, they have to choose a film that they, that they like or a film that has inspired them and talk about the cinematography. And 
you know, if a student is choosing something like Die Hard or they're choosing Gladiator or 2001 or whatever, if they're choosing films on that level, I severely hope that they have an understanding of the years and years of training and dedication mm-hmm. that went into the making of that film. That was not just somebody waking up and saying, oh, I'm going to I'm going <laughs> to make I'm going to make this, you know, sword and sandal epic <laughs> using all kinds of digital effects and huge canvases of battles and and all of this stuff without somehow being fully committed to the toll that it's going to take on them personally. Yeah. Right. The 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 lack of sleep, the fatigue, the stress. You're not going to be doing that if you don't really if you're not really compelled and and maybe borderline obsessed <laughs> with it's true. wanting to make a film. And so it and so it has to start from somewhere inside of you. And then if you have that, then I see no choice in the question of of exposing yourself to films from from different cultures and different countries and from different time periods. It's just something that you have to do. Yeah. And so just as a very quick recent example, Abbas Kurastami, uh Iranian filmmaker, passed away over the summer. And I was familiar with some of his films, but not all of his films, because, you know, there was a certain point where, you know, they, they weren't being released in the United States, et cetera. And I had seen some, but I had forgotten them because some of the films that I had seen that he was known for, I hadn't, I'd watched them once and hadn't seen them in maybe 15, 20 years. Yeah. And so I took advantage of the $7.99 I'm giving Hulu every month. <laughs> to to go to the Criterion Collection and spent a weekend like watching the films that were that they had on their streaming platform. And I didn't I didn't end up I think I ended up watching all the ones they had with the exception of of two. Mm-hmm. But that was like a weekend of of me kind of reconnecting to some of the films I had seen before, of me, you know, 15, 20 years now have elapsed and me going back and watching films that I had seen earlier. And when you do that, as you do with like any art form, whether it's a piece of music or it's a painting or a photograph, you, if you have experienced it at one point and then years have gone by and you come back and experience it again, you see things that you didn't see before that work of art. If it's, if it's a work of art that has some resonance is going to speak to you in ways that it didn't speak to you when you saw it 10, 15, 20 years earlier. Yeah. And so that was that was a very kind of enlightening weekend for me because I was basically being reintroduced to a filmmaker that I knew about but was now seeing their work and their films in a completely different way than I had seen earlier. This might be kind of related. Do you have anything that you feel that you do to help you improve your understanding of film or just your own craft of filmmaking that you think most people don't do? One thing, I don't know if it's what most people don't do or not. There's a couple of things. One thing that I I make a point of doing, and this may sound funny after everything we've talked about, (laughs) is that I try to 
get away from film. Mm. I will purposely like not watch movies for certain periods of time. I will purposely not read any books about filmmaking. I will try to do things that have nothing to do with the specifics of cinema or filmmaking in any way so that I can expose myself to other things and build up other parts of my psyche Mm -hmm. and then come back to film. I think, you know, one of the things that I think the mistake that some students make that I see is that we have some students that don't know anything beyond film. And I think, I think that's a mistake. Yeah. I think you have to know, and it's not just knowing other forms of expression, which is, which is good, but I think you also have to know, what's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. I think you have to you have to know you have to expose yourself to to politics and to history and to psychology. You have to you have to know what other people are experiencing and are struggling with outside of the films that you want to make and the films that you want to see and the films that you like. I think that's I think that's important. Yeah, I think I remember reading it was probably a book by, I'm pretty sure it was a famous acting teacher. I just can't remember who it was. But I think one of his biggest recommendations to actors was to not focus so much on learning how to act as opposed to just living and getting as mm-hmm. much experience as you can mm-hmm. outside of the, you know, just learning your art. And that way, all of those experiences can kind of inform um, characters that you might create down the line. So I think it's similar as just like a filmmaker or writer, you know, Unless you've gone out there and actually lived and tried different things and met different people, it's you don't have as as many resources to pull from. Yeah, and I, uh, yeah, I agree, and I think I think you know, for me as someone who makes films on their own, and so I don't have to. I can basically make film about anything I want to make about, but I, I also I also can't make a film about things that I don't that I don't have some strong sensibility about or or that don't have meaning for me. Mm -hmm. And so those films are generally coming from something either within me or something that has affected me. Yeah. Because I, it's just, it's just too much work. (laughs) It's too much work and it's too much time for me to devote to something that I don't have some kind of connection with. And I don't have to. It's like I'm yeah, not exactly. I'm not being hired to direct an episode of Law and Order. <laughs> Although, you know, while that would be nice because that, you know, help to pay for, you know, putting siding on my house and fixing my basement. Uh, I'm not in that position. And since I'm not in that position, whatever I'm going to do has to mean something to me. Yeah, uh, because it's just it's just hours and hours that I'm going to be devoting to other things besides like, you know, my family or, you know, watching football. (laughs) So um, I think the other thing that I do, and this, this brings me back to film is that I like to learn what other filmmakers have done. I like to, I like to read about their, thought process, their creative process, and their professional and creative struggles. 
And so there are there are a number of books that are on the market. I think there's probably things that are online that I haven't I'm not as um, aware of where the filmmakers or the artists are actually talking about their experiences. Do you have any favorites that come to mind? Favorites. Um, let's see. Yeah, actually, I do actually, and it's and it, you know I, I, he's not typically regarded at, looked at as a filmmaker, I think, but I think we have to include him. But it's uh, Walter Murch. Okay, yeah, who's mm-hmm. uh, the editor. He has a number of books. One which is really interesting was it was a book that chronicled the editing of Cold Mountain, um, which Cold Mountain being officially like the first Hollywood feature film that was edited using Final Cut Pro. Mm. Um, at a time when Final Cut Pro was not designed to edit much of anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and that was a very interesting book, you know, because it, it was combining the creative process also with the technology. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming he had to learn a lot about the about Final Cut because he came from a long line of actually cutting film, right? <laughs> well, yeah, and, and and actually that was a lear- that that wasn't much of a learning curve because there had there had been some earlier you know, nonlinear editing systems, but it was more so like, how do we do what we know we need to do with the limitations that the software is going to put upon us? Mm -hmm. And how do we then work with certain technicians and programmers so that they can think about, because they were, they, one thing that was, that they did was that they worked they worked very closely with some of the people from Apple in getting some things done for them in order to kind of facilitate some of the needs that they had. Yeah. And also, I mean, it's, it's like what we have to understand is that, you know, students don't have, don't have an awareness that you might have an editor, but you're also going to have assistant editors and then you're going to have assistant assistant editors and everybody's doing something different. Uh-huh. And because you have to on, on large things like that. And it's good because those are those are jobs that students could actually go into those assistant editing jobs if they have some understanding of how to not just edit, but more so than editing, data management. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not it's you know, we had to manage we had to manage all the film materials when we were cutting on film. We had to do it through paper and writing on writing with Sharpies on the rolls of film and hanging trims. And so organization was, uh, was a key component then and now. It's just now the organization is, is ones and zeros, but you still have to think about how you're going to organize things. Yeah, I mean, I found myself getting uh, too eager to work on certain projects where I skipped the organizing part, and then <laughs> it becomes a mess. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I, I do that too, but, I, uh, but if it's a smaller project, I think we can, we can get away yeah, with it. Yeah. Yeah. So th- that was that has been helpful. There's was, there was another book that he did. It's called Conversations, um, where he's talking to a writer about editing, about film history. Uh-huh. Um, and he's talking about his processes, and so the the way he thinks about editing and his anecdotes on on how he solves certain situations and how he constructed narrative is is very interesting. And, and if you know, it's it's books like that that I think make it immediately apparent that there's no one way of doing something. Mm-hmm. There's no one way, particularly when it comes to editing, there's no one way of how to cut a scene together, right? I think when we watch a lot of television, 
because television is a, is a very different medium and it, it has to adhere to very different things. And I'm specifically talking about network television because cable and streaming, you know, they don't have, they don't have the same requirements as let's say network television. And if you watch network television, particularly hour long dramas, you'll see that there is a particular approach to how they're edited. Films, feature-length films, don't approach editing in the same way. And even within certain genres and types of films, the editing is also can be different. And I think that's important because if we're going to come back to this idea that, that cinema is an art form, mm-hmm. then doesn't that say that each example within that art form doesn't have to be the same. But I think that's that's something that it gets subjugated some kind of way. Let's talk about your films and your filmmaking process a little bit. I looked back at some of the work that you have online, and it definitely seems like you have more of a contemplative style to your work. And it seems like there's a lot of breath built in there compared to a lot of modern stuff. Is that from all we talk about, I'm assuming that's intentional. <laughs> but I guess what what's kind of your thoughts on that, on your, your own style? And what are you trying to say with some of your work? Are there recurring themes? I think there are definitely recurring themes. I mean, communication and uh, the interpersonal relationships, particularly between men and women, mm-hmm. was, I think still is, a an interest of mine. And I, I thank you for using that term contemplative because I, I think some other other people that I work with and have and have um, studied under have also pointed that out. Yeah. And I'm not entirely sure where that comes from. I, I think that some of it is is cultural. I also think that some of it is personal in terms of an expression of aspects of my personality. Mm-hmm. I think it's also coming from certain influences. You know, one of the things that uh, in my in my studies that I found interesting, and uh, I think you can you can see it in some of my work is this idea of time and the idea that time, the, our time of reality, rea- real time, can also be either expressed or manipulated in through cinema time Mm -hmm. and that cinema at its core foundation is a manipulation of photographic time. And a lot of those theories that that idea comes from the guy we were talking about earlier, Tarkovsky. Yeah. Yeah. I gravitated towards that to some degree, and I and I and I and it, I don't know. It just it just spoke to me in some way. Do you remember a time when you made that shift, or even were your eight millimeter films even have some of that aspect to it? I don't think the eight millimeter films have that. I think the eight millimeter when I the super eight films that I was I was making, they were really like the influences there were more, you know, let's say entertainment, popcorn stuff like that. Yeah. All right. There's one film that I did in, in high school that that I would like to to share, but you know I, I still don't know how to go about doing any of those films without the permission of all the people that were in it. But I think the shift really really starts to come about in graduate 
film school. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I think also leading up to that, for some reason, I don't know if this was by choice or not, but the films I made in undergrad, it had a lot to do with the technology. Not that we didn't have it at our disposal, but I just for some reason didn't want to deal with it. The, the, the two significant films I made in undergraduate film studies that are, that are online don't have dialogue in them. Mm. And because of that, I had to focus on telling the story visually and then subsequently, you know, building some type of, of sound component, sound design to them. And a lot of that bled through in to the graduate work where my two graduate films, uh, my directing film and also my thesis film, have little to no dialogue in them as as well. I think that that really influenced the pacing and the visual aspect of those of those films because you know I, I did not have characters that were expressing themselves verbally they were expressing themselves in in other ways and I had to communicate things to the audience in other ways whether I succeeded or not is a, is a whole other other mm-hmm. um, debate but I think it begins there particularly particularly with my thesis film I've, I think I've further kind of developed that sensibility since then. And, and that's, and it's also one of the reasons why I think, you know, if, if I, I feel comfortable, it's something that is a part of me for some reason, mm-hmm. while subsequent films have dialogue in them. Um, and, you, and I do have characters that are verbally expressing themselves and interacting and, um, and, and conflicting with one another. There are still these moments where time is manipulated in some way, whether it's condensed or whether it's elongated. I like the fact that I have the ability to do that cinematically with a visual image. Whether it's, it's understood or not, you know, um, there's, there's always a purpose and an objective to it. And, and I always think about why why am I putting this shot here? What mm-hmm. am I trying to express with this particular shot? And and if I if I hold this shot for X number of seconds, what what also am I expressing? And also how is it how is an audience going to respond to this? Yeah. So that that's that's a that's a part of it as well. And and sometimes I'll take that into consideration and sometimes I won't. Are you still trying to shoot on actual film stock if you have the the option? Because I know that I think almost no one that I know shoots on film anymore. It's almost gone completely <laughs> digital. Even there's maybe a few big guys out there that are still fighting for it. But do you, are you still trying to shoot on it? And if so, why? And is it is it the process of actually using film to make movies? Or is it something with the look or just kind of... What do you feel like you'd be missing without it? I am, in fact, I shot I shot some film over the summer, just uh, stuff out in my backyard, you know, trees and flowers, things like that. But I, I shot on film, and the film that I am trying to make now is a short film. Uh, we are planning to shoot on film, mm-hmm. and so and I and I'm not a snob about it. <laughs> um, I I don't have, and I'm very careful. I make sure I tell students. I don't think film is necessarily superior to any other digital 
formats. I, yeah. I think it's definitely su- superior to videotape. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the old and and I and VHS. I, I yeah VHS or Beta <laughs> yeah. or you know Mini DV. I mean, in in and I was in undergrad in grad school. I I was we were at this transition where we used all of those formats. Yeah. And I still, I still shoot with a mini DV camcorder. I mean, because I, I, I like it. It's, it's for, it's for certain things. Yeah, it has a specific look. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's a, it's a, it's a documentary, so the look is, it's, it's acceptable for that form. But it doesn't mean that I won't use it for a narrative, mm-hmm. um, if I want to use that tool for whatever reason. But I like film. I like the way film looks. I like the texture of it on the image. I like having to work with it. I, I feel comfortable working. There's something about film that I feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. If I if I'm if I'm shooting with film, I, I've worked with it long enough where I know that if I have a certain film stock and I have a certain exposure, I'm going to get a certain result. Yeah, and I also like the mystery. Of film because <laughs> while I while I know that film stock can also surprise you yeah and it and it can give you something that you didn't expect you were going to get and that that is that is uh, I just I like that that anticipation of seeing what your results are I mean it can, it can be frustrating it can it can delay the creative process because. There's sometimes there's a part of me where I, I want to shoot and then I want to go straight into the editing room. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, that's not a good thing. I don't think you should <laughs> shoot and go straight into the editing room. I think you have to, I think you have to shoot. A lot of film, a lot of directors have talked about this, and then separate yourself from whatever it is you think you're going to have, so that when you come back to it, you come back to it almost as if you don't remember anything you've done. Yeah, you're not attached to that day that it was so hard to get this shot. <laughs> yeah. You're not, you're not attached to anything that you did because it's, it's even, even merch talks about is of looking at something with fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. And so even when you're in the editing, when you're in the midst of an editing process and, and I know that I have to say I've been editing and editing and editing for, for weeks and I've gotten to a point where let's say I have a cut, I will make a point of, doing something else for a number of days, trying not to think about it, not messing with it, just separating myself from it, and then coming back and watching that cut. And so it's almost like trying to forget everything about the film so that you can watch the film as if you've seen it for the first time. Mm-hmm. I have all kinds of like negative and work print in my office where I'm running out of space to store. <laughs> but the one thing I, that, that I also like about film and this does speak to the technology, is that I'm very confident that as long as I can maintain a certain temperature in my office, that all of my film materials will be around and viable for a number of decades. And I'm not confident that anything that is on a videotape or anything that is is on my hard drive is going to have the same life expectancy. Yeah kind of a big unknown. <laughs> yeah, and I've read a, a number of recent articles where that's the one thing that the industry is, still hasn't quite solved is the archival and the sustainability of the films that are shot purely digitally. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, and for me, you know, this is this is evidence of our culture, it's evidence of our existence. And I I would like at least even if it's just one film that I made to to be here 5000 years from now for for someone to find and to say, oh, look at this. This is what this human did mm-hmm. in the 20th century, you know, the 20, early 21st century. And, you know, that's a historical artifact. 5,000 years from now, it probably won't be around, but <laughs> say a couple of hundred years from now. Yeah, yeah. You know? By then, hopefully, they'll, got the, they'll have the digital archiving down. <laughs> maybe, maybe. But um, what was this about film? I like touching it. I like having to load it into a camera and load it into a magazine. There's that that mechanical process of working with the thing that is going to create the image and the uh, device that is going to capture the light and imprint that image mm-hmm. onto this this piece of plastic. It's it's um, much more physical. It's, it's, or it's more physical, but it's, there's something about it that there's a certain, there's a certain care that I think you inherently have to have when you're dealing with those physical elements. Because if you don't do it correctly, you run the risk of something disastrous happening. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be very cognizant of what it is you're doing and how you're doing it. And I think technology has has made things a lot easier where, you know, it's like you just pop the SD card in or, you know, you just run the cable to the hard drive recorder. And as long as you put it in properly and put it into the right jack, the percentage of error is very low. But for a mechanical film, it's it's much higher. Yeah, just don't hit format when you uh, didn't offload the card yet. That's right. that's a yeah, dangerous one. Yeah, and make sure you back back everything yeah. up twice. Is there anything just being on set with film in terms of the way you have to work with it, the time it takes to load or to set up, or your experience with lighting a set without being able to see it instantly on on a screen? Is there anything? from that side of it that you like over, over the digital medium? Well, I, you know, that's, then you get into like a, the other side of the coin. I don't know if I necessarily like that aspect of it because once you, once you become proficient at what you're doing and you know, you, you have taken the time to learn how to use the tools and how to evaluate certain things, you can develop a certain confidence that what it is that you're doing is going to result in something that you're going to be able to use. Mm -hmm. All right. And I think that's the key. The thing that goes kind of along with that is you have to approach when you're shooting film, you, you, your, your approach to production has to be, has to be shifted a little bit because the one thing that I learned, like for when we uh, wrote and directed a short film that we produced a few years ago in the department called Hacked, mm-hmm. and we shot that on the Area Alexa, and there was a there was a very pivotal scene that was very important to the character's arc that we ended up 
doing on uh, the first day of production, which was not a good idea. <laughs> I, but I was I was confident that I was you know I had confidence in the actor. I yeah. knew he could do it, and he actually did a good job. But the problem came with the technical side because we there was a camera move that I wanted, and the DP was shooting at. Uh, we were on a long lens with a wide aperture. And so the depth of field was very shallow. Mm-hmm. And because the camera was moving, the focus puller had a very challenging job of keeping the shot in focus. And we had, we had a monitor and he had a remote focus assist. And so he was using the monitor to do the focus. Yeah. And because there were issues with that, because of all of those technical aspects, it took a number of takes to, to do that move, to get the performance, and to also have the, the shot stay in focus. And I think we ended up doing, I'm going to say, 11 or 12 takes. It's getting out there. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all, that for me, if you know anything about, about me, that's, that's a lot of takes for me. And if I was shooting on film, I would not have done that many times. <laughs> And I think that's the, that's a complete kind of philosophical and production shift that happened because I was shooting digital. And then, and yet, then the thing is, is that I don't know if that necessarily resulted. I ended up using the very last take because that's the take that had the that had the maintained focus. Yeah. But if I was shooting film, I would have been forced, I think, to develop a different strategy for solving that problem Mm -hmm. because I would not have wanted to burn film for each one of those takes that I was not going to be able to use because the, the shooting ratio in that, that one shot was not uh, pleasant to me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, shooting film using, using the resources I'm able to, to, to gather about me, which is still like very, very, low to no budget filmmaking, I would not have been able to afford that many takes on film. And so I'm very aware of my shooting ratio when I'm shooting on film. And so the, the, the policy then is we, we rehearse, 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 rehearse. And when it's almost there in terms of performance, not in terms of camera, but in terms of performance, then we'll do a take. Yeah. And if that's a good take, depending upon what it is, I might do another take, right? But I won't do another take just because. If I'm doing another take, it's because there's something else that I want to get or I want to do some type of alternate version of that take mm-hmm. so that I have an option in the editing. And if, if neither of those two are the case and there's nothing happening with everything is good on a technical side, I will just go to the next shot. And so I'm, I might have just one take of something, but I'm okay with that. What do you constantly see beginner film, filmmakers do that just drives you crazy? Is there anything? <laughs> they don't rehearse their shots. They, 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 they're shooting on film and they don't rehearse their shots. <laughs> Especially uh, on film. Yeah. And, that, and, I, and I, I don't see it happening because I'm not on their shoots, but I see it. I see the footage. And I'll ask them, you know, did you rehearse that? And it's like, no. And you can, you can kind of tell. You, you develop a, a, an awareness and a sens- sensitivity yeah. of being able to discern how, how a shoot went by looking at the footage. 
And, and, and I think a part of that is also not adequately preparing themselves for the production, particularly when they're shooting film. You're shooting film, it's almost mandatory that you have a certain level of support because of the equipment. And, you know, having, having someone to help you transport the equipment and really thinking about your shots, knowing that you have a certain amount of footage, you have a certain number of shots that you want to do, just really thinking everything through. Mm-hmm. I think that's the thing that I see a lot of students, particularly in the in the beginning classes, just not taking the time to do, to really preparing themselves for everything. And oftentimes all that takes is just a sitting down face to face with the people that you're going to be working with and just working through each and every aspect of the production. Mm-hmm. Right. And and talking it through and saying, okay, this here's this this is our next shot, and this shot involves X, Y, and Z, and and someone saying, well, how what do you do you do you have do you have a dolly? Do you have a crane? How are we going to do that if you don't have that? Right? What do we do if it if it's cloudy? What do we do if it rains? Uh, how many takes can we do of that shot? That's a complicated shot. How mm-hmm. many takes can we do of it? And these and these are the things that that happen on other productions. These are things that happen on TV shows. You know, there are production meetings where everything is hashed out from beginning to end so that you minimize the uncertainty and the things that can go wrong because undoubtedly something is going to go wrong and something is going to happen that you, that you did not expect. Yeah. And when you're on set, especially on something like that, uh, time really is money minutes yeah. minutes are thousands of dollars <laughs> yeah and, and, I, and i think the other thing that that something i had to learn and i'm still learning it but I'm, I'm i'm much more in tune with it than i've than i've ever been and something that i i make sure i tell my students to to think about particularly for the upper level classes is listen to your conscience um your inner voice always speaks to you if your inner voice is speaking to you Pay attention to your inner voice. <laughs> it's very important. Like you mean uh, in terms of maybe feeling like uh, something's wrong or maybe we should uh, double check this. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. If, if you're, if you're, I remember when, uh, if this is before I was living in DC and one of the, the last big films I did. And, and, and uh, I think I, sh- I might've shown you some of this, but um Cigarettes for breakfast is mm-hmm. my is my feature. Um, still has not been officially released, but I remember. I mean that shoot that was that that I'm working on some things to kind of go along with uh, hoping to get that film on DVD um, in the next year or so. But there was uh, there was a time on one of the shoots where there was just there was a lot of things going on it was just a it was a shoot that was um uh kind of out of control on one of the one of the days because we were we were at a location uh and there was just there was a lot of activity and instead of my and my conscience told me daniel there's 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 a lot that's going on wrong around you (laughs) okay you should you should step out and talk to like your key people 
your your AD and your director of photography and reevaluate and reformulate a plan to go forward because if you don't this is going to result in disaster yeah. <laughs> and it didn't result in disaster but it resulted in footage that was very problematic to use and that could have that and that could have been shot in a very different way that would have made it more effective for the story. What do you think made you kind of ignore that voice and just keep going? Um, fear. Yeah. Fear of of being in that moment where you're acknowledging that you need to basically change tactics mm -hmm. because a fear of a fear of acknowledging that you everything that you thought that you were that was going to work is not working um fear of appearing that you're not in control and i think it's better to to say everybody take five or take ten and go and have a meeting than to keep moving forward and end up having material that you that you have to struggle. I mean, because you're there to create material. Yeah. You're there to get the images to tell the story. And I think the crew will have more respect for you if they see you go and think about what it is you're going to do and then come back and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. Yeah, because the reality is they probably have a sense that something's kind of not going right too. <laughs> oh yeah. And particularly in this case, there was, there was, there was just, I was just, I walked in, we walked into a situation that I was just not expecting. Yeah. And we, instead of like just saying, Hey, let's, let's rethink this. We just forced ahead <laughs> as best we could. And, uh, um, being young. <laughs> yeah, but I wasn't that young. I, I wasn't that young. It was, this was like, what is this? Uh, this was uh, 14. I was younger. So we're talking 14, 13, 14 years ago. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I was not in my 20s. Yeah. So I should have known better. But, <laughs> but you know, there's, it's, it's, uh, there's a certain amount of anxiety when you are doing a production or any production because you're you're presenting and putting yourself out there as a person that not only is in charge managerially but is also in charge creatively and i think there is a there is a need there is a necessity pr to present that persona because you have all these people that you have either encouraged or bribed or <laughs> outright paid to come on this journey with you. And you want to, you want to present to them that you're a competent leader. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause they're always looking at you and kind of judging the situation by based on your reaction. Yeah. I mean, and I, and I think that's, I think that's what's also in the back of your mind that you, that you are being judged. Right. That they're that, and you hope that you hope that you're not. But the reality is, is that yeah, you are being judged. There are going to be some people that are there, whether they're actors or crew, or whoever, that are 
and are that are also evaluating you, mm-hmm. which is the which is the bad side of it. But it's a reality. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's natural to some extent. You're always just kind of, especially whoever's leading whatever type of work you're doing, you're always checking in with them to, you know, I guess for direction, really. <laughs> That's what it is. And if you give the wrong vibes, it can turn some people in the wrong direction. Yeah, yeah. But you, I think you also have to be confident that even if you make, even if you don't make the right creative choice, mm-hmm. you have to be confident in that choice. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, you and and I think that comes along with accepting the responsibility that you have when you're going to be involved in that endeavor, whether you're the director or the the director of photography or whether you're just whether you're uh, working on a camera crew or the lighting crew. You have to accept that you're coming to that endeavor with a certain responsibility mm-hmm. and if you make if you make a mistake then you make a mistake because everybody makes mistakes and if you make a mistake that that results in something not working right then you say yeah i'm sorry uh, my bad yeah that was that was on me i'd i'd, I'd rather have i i respect people more when they when they acknowledge that they've made a mistake than someone who tries to put mistakes off on other people mm-hmm. or has an arrogance and ego that tells them that they didn't make a mistake. The mistake is on somebody else. Yeah. That's the worst kind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, speak, listening to your conscience and, and it's, it's okay. It's, it's absolutely okay to step back and say, I need to reevaluate this. Give me five minutes. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. I know we're going pretty long here, so maybe I'll try to wrap it up. But what what uh, things are you working on? You mentioned uh, a film you're planning on shooting in the near future. Anything you could talk about? This is a short film that I, I have been kind of developing. Well, not, I haven't been developing a short film for years, but it's 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 a uh, it's a story that I've been developing for a while. And um, at its at its core is a family that is going through as as all families do at certain points uh a a a crisis and it could be a crisis of faith or a crisis a health crisis or just a uh, uh, unresolved crises or uh, unresolved issues from their past mm-hmm. that that have to be addressed, that have to be faced up to in order to, you know, progress and move forward. And so without, without going into the specifics of the plot, that's, that is, that is, that is, that's some of the, the, the thematic ideas that um, the story is from. And after years of working on it, developing it, I recently finished a feature screenplay with these characters and what I'm trying to do now is to take those characters and tell not the same story, but um, a, a similar story in a short film format. Okay. And so there are there are certain things of there's a lot of the larger story that that are not going to be able to be a component of the short film because short film, as you know. 
has to tell its story in very different ways. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm in the process of I'm trying to get a cast together. And um, we have shooting days. I have, I have film stock. <laughs> <laughs> I, I even have uh, someone who has invested a little bit of money. And I'm looking to get a little bit more money along with funds that I'm going to contribute to the film. And the main issue, the main hurdle is the cast. If I can get the cast, then by a certain time, then we are we are definitely going um, into production. Do you have specific people in mind or are you still just kind of working on some leads? I do have some people in mind. And these these are people that I have um, found um, using um, the online uh, backstage. Mm-hmm. Seems like a lot of people use that nowadays. Yeah. And. I actually, I actually didn't realize that they had an online component until just a few months ago, because there was there was some Cleveland-based acting resources I was looking at, and there was some Michigan Michigan-based acting mm-hmm. resources I was looking at, and then I I kind of came across this one and 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 saw the tools that it could, that it had, and I said, okay, let me let me look into this, but I was also looking at I was also looking to use some actors that I have used in the past. And I don't know if that's going to actually happen or not because they're not in the region. Yeah. And while I know that they have certain abilities and capabilities, it would still kind of limit their interaction with the other actors if they're not here for rehearsals. Mm-hmm. And so I haven't quite decided how I'm gonna how I'm gonna deal with that just yet, but Right now, I'm really looking at some regional actors, and these are all these are not name actors. Some of them are even uh, aren't even actors. Um, just individuals that I know have a have a certain level of comfort in front of the camera, mm-hmm. and that have a certain physicality that I think would work for the part. And um, I, I need to I need to solve those in the next I would say three weeks at the latest so I can so I can have at least one or two rehearsals with them. Yeah, so there's a little bit of pressure. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit, just a little bit. Since we're trying to shoot in the second week second weekend of October. What's the long view? Are you planning on attempting to use the short to possibly raise money for the feature that you've written? Well, that that's definitely. This is definitely a uh, something that we could use the short for because with the short, you know, we have the characters. We would basically be presenting the same kind of style, mood, and atmosphere that I could propose the feature would also embody. And so along with other elements such as the screenplay and a prospectus and, a, and, and um, uh, a more detailed budget, and ideas, more more information about thematic ideas and uh, tone, and other films that can be used as comparisons. We, you know, one thing I could see myself doing is putting together a whole kind of uh, electronic uh, pitch prospectus mm-hmm. that someone could look at, and they could go through. Uh, one of our former students. Um, shared with me a perspective that he put together and it's something that I, that I knew could be done and I had it in my mind and I was looking at him I was like yeah this is exactly what what I want to do yeah, and yeah. it was very detailed you know and it was very visual I mean it was it was a PDF 
um, that he probably did in, in Photoshop initially. But, you know, talks about the story, talks about the thematic ideas, talks about the characters, um, talks about the type, the actors that they could see embodying the characters. So you start to put together types of actors mm-hmm. that you would, that you would look for. And, and I think, you know, that's the reality of what you have to do, particularly if you're looking for investors. And, and I've worked with um, even some of my mentors from graduate school have done, have done things like this to raise money for their films. Some quick questions. Do you have any favorite films of recent time? Oh, of recent. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's see. Um, well, I'm always a, you know, a big fan of anything that Wong Kar Wai uh-huh. does. And even though I haven't seen the Grand Master yet, um, I've seen enough of it to know that I'm going to like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but recently, um, uh, Ex Machina, I thought, was mm. really well done. Yeah, I enjoyed that one. Uh, yeah. And I also thought uh, Spotlight was oh, yeah. well made as well. You know, I have a I have a I have a I have a kind of a routine where even though I I, I don't believe in the Oscars one bit, <laughs> I will I will either before or after the Oscars, I'll I will try to see a lot of those films that were nominated. Yeah. Just so you could be a part of the culture and talk about them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you know, I think and while I appreciate those films and I, and I appreciate the, the, you know, the two films I mentioned in terms of their storytelling um, abilities, I think the film that I saw recently that, that really kind of gravitated, uh, that I gravitate more towards and, and spoke to me on, on, on other levels uh, are the two, two, two films I saw on um, the Criterion website or um, Hulu that were made by um, Abbas Kurastami. Mm-hmm. And um, one was his, his first his first fictional feature, which was uh, Where Where's My Friend's House? <laughs> and the other film was The Wind Will Carry Us. Um, those those films, those films spoke to me on on well, much more intimate ways than the the two other films did what era are those from are they um the first one where's my friend's house is a film that i think uh, if i'm gonna i think it was released in i want to say i'll say probably late 80s mid to late 80s and the wind will carry us is was released in i think it was completed in the early to mid 90s Related question. Do you have any other media that you're kind of consuming right now that you have any recommendations for either books or music or anything else that you've been into? I'm reading like, like, uh, I'm reading three books right now and I have a tendency to do that. I'm actually, if I, if I really think about it, I'm actually probably reading, (laughs) probably reading five books right now. I have a similar habit. (laughs) Yeah. And one I haven't, I haven't actually gone back to in a a while, but I'm reading, I'm reading a biography of Nicholas Tesla, which uh, I I think he's just uh, a really intriguing and interesting individual. Uh, And particularly for filmmakers, it's important, you know, to, to kind of, 
have an understanding of not Tesla necessarily, but of Edison. Yeah, and they they had some pretty big interactions. <laughs> yeah, and also the way that Edison actually went about his his business. I mean, Edison is is accredited with inventing a lot of things. Yeah, <laughs> but the reality is very different. I mean. Edison had a company and he employed a lot of inventors mm -hmm. and those inventors signed contracts with Edison that whatever they invented became the ownership and intellectual property of Edison's company. And so he owned the patent for whatever was invented while these people were in his employ. And so that's why a lot of things are credited to Edison. Yeah. Having Plus, I think his company bought a lot of patents too, didn't they? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and so you know, I mean, so anyway, I wanna, <laughs> but he but he's also he's also has has a lot to do with how filmmaking kind of transitioned from you know a purely kind of uh, you know art that could have been in, in museums to something that, that is now an uh, industry. Yeah. Um, but I'm reading, I'm reading that. I'm reading the uh, People's History of the United States. Okay. Yeah, I started that book a long time ago, and I never finished it. Yeah, same here. And, I, and I'm, I'm reading that on a, on, a, on a Barnes & Noble nook, which doesn't really facilitate the reading process as much as I, as I thought it would. But um, I'm reading... Uh, Dick Gregory's autobiography, because he, he actually, he was born and raised in St. Louis. So I'm reading that. I'm reading, oh, I'm reading, uh, and this is, this comes from, you know, I, I listen to um, NPR on pretty much a daily basis, mm -hmm. particularly when I'm in the car. And so a lot of, a lot of things that I've, I've been made aware of recently come from listening to NPR in terms of like interviews with uh, authors or artists and things like that. Yeah. So there's a, there's a book called Ghetto Side that I was introduced to on NPR that chronicles the relationship between Los Angeles homicide detectives and homicide, um, let's, let's say, uh, instances of homicide in, um, among the black community in Los, Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And very, very interesting. Not, not, it's not an enjoyable read, but it's very interesting. Yeah. And the last one, which is just more recently, is I'm reading a book called Difficult Men, which <laughs> basically... Um, this isn't is about you, right? No, <laughs> Suggestion no, from your wife? <laughs> no, that'll, that'll be published. Uh, this is a book that that chronicles the um, what the author calls the third golden age of television, mm. and it's looking at the transition from, let's say, a certain type of protagonist through what we kind of have what we, what we're seeing more recently with shows like Breaking Bad and The Sopranos and Deadwood and things like that. Deeply flawed people. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and what's interesting is that it's, it's, it's all going back to, you see some of the, the building blocks for these shows uh, and the characters in shows like Hill Street Blues mm -hmm. and 
Uh, of course, there you know there's some network show like NYPD Blue, things like that. But the but the thing is, is that and this is something that I've also told my students because we know that these shows are very popular. And while we have while we we're in a film program, we also know and 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 see very clear evidence that because shows like Breaking Bad and The Sopranos and shows that are either on cable or on streaming platforms are have the ability to have a more kind of cinematic. Uh, an unconventional approach to their narratives, right? Which fits in perfectly with with studies of cinema. Mm-hmm. And whether they know it or not, they realize it or not. I don't know if this is a, this is a reason why they're gravitating towards it, but a lot of our students are watching probably these shows more than they're you know consuming actual feature length films. Yeah. And as a result, there some of them are developing a, a desire to kind of work in work on these shows or to create their own shows. And the, the reality of that is that if they want to do that, television industry, whether it's cable or it's streaming, is very different from the film industry. And when it comes to television shows, and this book is clearly pointing that out, it's not saying that, but through its history, mm-hmm. all of the people that it's talking about are writers. Yeah, definitely. All all the showrunners of today came up through writing. Exactly, and and they're, and they're they're currently writers, mm-hmm. and they 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 began like someone like David Chase, who you know created The Sopranos. I mean, he was he was a staff writer for Northern Exposure at some point. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. That yeah. So and 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 so I'm I'm there are names that the author is referencing, like Barbara Hall. Who created Madam Secretary? These, mm. these are. She also worked on Northern Exposure. So, I, I watch probably maybe a little bit too much television, but I'm very, <laughs> I'm very selective. I, I really don't watch reality TV unless it's a show about cooking, because <laughs> uh, I, I and cooking is also a, a creative process. You can learn a lot about yourself That's true, from yeah. <laughs> about the creative process from just cooking a meal. But they're writers, and the, and the other ironic thing is that a lot of them did not come from film programs. They came from either creative writing programs or from liberal arts programs. Mm-hmm. They did not necessarily study film. They, they might have had an interest or in a love of film. Um, David Chase says he, he grew up with a love of European art cinema, but they did not formally study film. And so these are things that we have to keep in mind. Yeah, depending on what path you want to take. Yeah, it's, it's, there's, it's, there's no clear-cut path to this field. You know, we've had, we have people that come to visit us, and they, they ask, well, who, who from your program is, like, you know, working in the industry now? I'm like, well, you know, um, we have students that are doing a lot of stuff, yeah. but you wouldn't know their names because they're not, they're not famous. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's the big thing I realized when I moved out to L.A. There, there are a ton of people from Bowling Green there. I was really surprised. I mean, <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly, exactly. And and it's it, it's going to take them a while, yeah, to make a name for themselves. And maybe they they will at some point become become famous. But I think you probably also interacted with a lot of people who did not study film, who mm-hmm. didn't come from a film program, and they're out there doing exactly the same thing that our students are doing from a film program. And there's nothing to say that the people from the film program are going to be more successful than the people that didn't go to a film program. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all about, I think, your sensibilities, 
your capabilities and, you know, what what knowledge and information that you have that someone might find useful at any given time. Yeah. And I think the study and the and the and the, um, the sensitivity to to life and to history and to individuals and to conflict and to wants and desires and also literature and, and just storytelling in general mm-hmm. can go a long way towards, you know, helping you forge a career or any endeavor in any kind of storytelling process beyond just knowing how to, you know, operate a camera. That all ties into the last question I want to ask you, which is, do you have any final advice for people thinking of attending film school? And I guess why choose school versus just going out there and, and trying to make it? I mean, I guess that's kind of an option too. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I, and I think, I think you have to decide for yourself. I think if you're at least on the undergrad, if you're thinking about studying film production in an undergraduate program, then you're doing so because you want to embrace the act and the culture of the study of film. Mm-hmm. It's not just about doing it as a way to make movies. You're doing it because you want to immerse yourself in the study of cinema. You want to study and learn about the history. You want to study the aesthetics. You want to study the craft of film from this country and in other countries and cultures all over the world. You want you're opening your, you want to be open to exposing yourself to the 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 width and the breadth of cinema mm-hmm. as it exists over the last 120 some years. And if you if you can tell yourself that that's what you want, that you want to study film, meaning that you want to read about it, you want to have to memorize things, you want to have to go to movies and you want to have to write about it, then if you can say, yes, I'm willing to do all of that, that's what I want to do, then I think there's you're, you're probably prepared and ready to go to film school. Mm-hmm. If you just want to make films, right, because you're already doing it um, as, as a high school or junior high, because there are lots of, lots of people that are already doing that, and you just want to make films and you like making films, but you don't really want to have to read essays about films or to write <laughs> papers about films, yeah. then I say keep making films. Don't come to school and study film. Come to school and study something else and just keep making your films. Mm-hmm. Because every university, you know, and some star my Bowling Green has, has a student film culture. And you can get into that film culture without being a film major. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And in fact, you'll probably be happier just making films on your own because you won't have to listen to people like me talk about <laughs> Tarkovsky or Antonioni. Uh-huh. <laughs> that makes sense. So having a desire for maybe the history of film and some other components on top of just wanting to make them. I think so. Yeah. I think, I think that's crucial because you, otherwise you'll just be, you'll just be frustrated yeah. and bitter 
and you won't perform well because you're like, I don't know. Why do I have to do all this? Uh, and, the know, answer is but, you don't. <laughs> exactly. You don't. You don't. It's yeah. it's a field that you don't have to study formally. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not it's not engineering. You know, it's like you can't just be an engineer. You have to go someplace and study engineering. Yeah. But you can just be a filmmaker if you want to do that. Particularly now. Yeah. Right. You got a computer, you got a cell phone or you got a, a DSLR. You can go out and you can be a filmmaker. You don't have to go to school to do it. All right, Daniel. Is there anywhere people can find you online? Yeah. I, uh, my website, thanks to you. And I, and I need to. I need to I'd like to go and and put some more stuff on there is mindonfirefilms.com that's mind m i n d like the brain yeah. mindonfirefilms.com yeah and I'll make sure to put that link in the show notes as well is there anywhere else do you post anything online at all I have a I have a Vimeo page okay yeah I could put that uh, on there Vimeo yeah I'm on Vimeo and all and actually all of my all the films as you know, that on the website are embedded from the Vimeo mm-hmm. page. And I think the Vimeo page is just Daniel E. Williams. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. And we went went way longer than I wanted to keep you. But <laughs> so feel free to edit. This was this was it's a, I really enjoyed it. You asked you asked me questions that uh, I don't typically get asked. So thank you very much for asking me to be on your show. You're welcome. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. You can follow me, John Jerko, at John Jerko on Twitter and Instagram, and find out more about Odyssey and News, including the show notes for each episode at odysseyandnews.com. We now have a separate Odyssey and News Instagram feed where we'll be posting audio teasers for each episode, along with photos from our guests. On the website, I'm including three to five takeaways for each episode, so you can get some value out of what we covered at a glance. Remember, you can find us on all of your favorite platforms like SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Folks, we spend hours every week preparing for the show, editing interviews, and putting together bonus content for you to enjoy. If you like what we're doing, we would love your support. You can now donate a small amount to us one time or monthly by going to the website and clicking donate. Even a couple dollars goes a long way. We could pay for a coffee that keeps us sane for the week or keep our web hosting bills paid up. Most importantly, please take a couple of minutes to go to iTunes to subscribe and rate the show. It's the only way the show gets noticed in this world of never-ending content. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, follow your true north.